welcome to CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman. I'm a practicing physician, a CMIO, and the host of CMIO Podcast. Today, covering the news to know for the week of June 15th, I've got seven articles on tap, so let's get to it. First article out of Healthcare IT News, and the date is June 10th. This is Kat Jarek. One in five patients are found, have found errors in visit notes. This is according to a new JAMA study. And this is uh, ambulatory care notes. They reported finding errors, and 40% of the errors they found were considered serious. Among patient-reported very serious errors, the most common characterizations were mistakes in diagnoses, medical history, medications, physical examination, test results, and notes on the wrong patient, and also wrong sidedness, left side versus right side. A couple more quotes from the article here. For, uh, one of the researchers note is that practitioners documented responses to questions that were reportedly never asked. That can be pretty controversial because we know patients don't always remember all the things that we talk about during a visit. But I think they would know if you're asking them um, about an entire body system, and particularly in review of systems, I would think that there's going to be questions that we may have documented. We may use language that they're not understanding, or perhaps we're just using a template and we really didn't ask all those questions. That's probably more realistic. Um, here's another line. Several patients reported errors attributable to EHR glitches, such as missing medications after EHR vendor changes. And I've taken a couple of my colleagues from uh, like a next gen over to our Epic system and getting the medications loaded in there is challenging without a doubt. And so, yeah, I could see that that happens, that there's gaps in there. They also go on to say, uh, attribution of all tests or vaccination dates to the patient's birth date, or a single date for all treatments or operations that reflected the patient's date of transfer into the organization. I get why that happens. It's lazy, but moving that data manually, getting that data into the EHR is annoying and painful and typically not done by people with advanced degrees. So, when you're abstracting these charts, you get what you get, and then it's kind of expected that we're gonna fix them as we go. And sure, the patients are finding some things that don't get caught during that abstracting period. This is a challenge of when we went from paper to digital, and it is an ongoing, it'll be there in our records forever. It'll take forever for us to find them all and get them out, and to be honest, I don't really fault the doctors. Now you say, oh, they have to be reading every line of their chart. And I guess that's right. They're signing it. But I'm not sure that that, in fact, I'm positive it doesn't happen. So I'm positive I don't do that when I practice. There are some things that I'll just trust that that smart link is bringing in the right piece of information and it's going to be good. And my hope my nurse did check those allergies because I'm counting on her to have checked that when I pull it into my note. Um, you know, if I'm prescribing medicine, of course, I'm checking that myself, but we do hope that the stuff we pull into our chart is accurate. 
Uh, another line or two, several patients attributed communication errors, especially those pertaining to events they thought did not occur at the visit, to misunderstandings or misrepresentation. Others found the practitioner's account disingenuous. In a few instances, patients reported seeking a new healthcare practitioner, especially if their attempts to correct errors were ignored. The JAMA study noted that some patients reported accidentally accessing the wrong patient's data when trying to look at their own records, a serious concern from a security standpoint. I'm trying to think about how that would happen. I'm guessing that this is a patient matching error. That would be one way. And perhaps the other way is somebody scanned something into the chart in the wrong place, wrong patient. So I, could, I guess I can see, it should be pretty rare though. Um, that's an unusual one. So what's my take on this? Yeah, the documentation in our charts is garbage. And I am getting to be a bigger believer in scribes. I haven't tried a virtual scribe program yet, and I would love to. Right now we use medical assistant scribe model, so and that's very successful, but also very expensive. And I just think if we want better documentation, take the doctor out of that process and use medical students or uh, others who are trying to get into the medical field. This is a great way for them to get exposure to medical terminology and learning about patient care. So there is a market for people looking to do that. Otherwise, it's a matter of artificial intelligence helping to proofread notes to help the doctor, and then just the doctor reviewing their own notes gets down to just basically having time to do it right. And the faster we go, the less chances we are, there are that we'll get it right. All right, let's tackle the next article. This one, Healthcare IT News, Sharon Taylor, June 11th. More documentation complexity on the way for advanced imaging orders. And what they're talking about here is the PAMA law. And I've ranted about this before. I'm going to rant on it one more time. We are now, as it's getting closer, as you all know, January 1, 2021, the penalty phase starts for clinical decision support on MRI, CT, PET scans, and nuclear medicine studies. And you must go through a CMS-approved clinical decision support tool. Uh, they call it appropriate use criteria. And you have to document a certain number that you get when you go through that and attach that to the claim so that way CMS knows that you went through the clinical decision support. And so I pretended that I was a non-employed physician in our community and what would I use to do that I've got a mom and pop EHR, let's say. I am a, a four provider practice, nothing huge out there. I'm not going to have Epic or Cerner or something like that. And what are my choices? Well, I went to the ACR website and they do have a tool that they offer that you can go through and you plug in the information. The website, the design on this is, is awful. It's not intuitive you enter in this information and then you get the eventually at the end you get a, uh, a six seven digit number that you would then write on your printed out order requisition for the ct scan and then when that gets to the hospital we take that order requisition and we have to somehow get that number in there so that it gets attached to our claim so some clerk is going to enter this in 
what a waste of time. It's probably not going to be the doctor who's doing this. It's going to be their secretary who's going to do this in these offices. And they'll take the number, write it down. If the number's not a good number, who cares? Then the secretary can't change that order. This is a monumental waste. And I'll be done with my rant and I'm done with that article. Next, beyond telehealth, the virtual care technology trends that will transform healthcare. And this one is on June 12, 2020, also out of healthcare IT news. And so I was interested in this article because, yeah, we all know telehealth, that's a big thing. But what else? What else is transforming healthcare right now? CMIOs, we need to know that. It was nothing in this article that blew my mind, but I'll touch on a few lines here. The first one is I start off with a, a quote that comes out of a, of a McKinsey article. Here's the quote. A recent estimate by consulting firm McKinsey suggests that $250 billion in healthcare spending could shift to virtual care models in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. Big, big number, big headline type stuff. But if you haven't read that McKinsey article, I do recommend it. And if you Google McKinsey and company, it's telehealth, a quarter trillion dollar post-COVID-19 reality. That is the headline on it. It's worth a read. First of all, McKinsey, they're pretty smart people. So uh, I do respect the articles that they put out. And there's some good tidbits in there that's worth gleaming onto and, and reviewing in, in more detail. But going back to this article, I'll read another line that caught my, caught my eye. Here it is. In some ways, COVID-19 has become another marketing slogan for tech firms. As the chair of medicine of a large New York health system told the author, too many companies are jumping into the COVID opportunity and there is a lot of confusion, making it even more difficult to select the right platforms. And so I'm gonna jump over to this Wall Street Journal article just for a second. And the title is, Urgent Care Clinics Turn to Technology to Meet the Coronavirus Challenge. And they talk about this company, and I'll leave their name off, uh, how the company accelerated the development and launch of a telemedicine application and built out features to allow COVID-19 patients to do these special things. And the special thing, check into their urgent care. Well, that technology has been out for at least five years and it allows them to do telehealth visits too. That's just marketing garbage in my mind. That is nothing specific to COVID-19. Now they may have rushed it to market in response to COVID-19 because everyone was moving to telehealth, great, but this is just marketing garbage. So keep your eyes out for that. There's a ton of people who will bring you the solutions to COVID-19 and all of the things associated and the problems that have been created. Baloney. They do note a couple of interesting trends. I'll highlight one here, which is the rise of a contactless experience. Technology-enabled workflows now enable patients to complete most of the registration formalities prior to the visit, be it a virtual consult or a clinic visit. Registration kiosks in hospital lobbies may soon be enabled with facial recognition software to eliminate the need for touching any surface. And I think that's really good stuff. I'm not sure about the facial technology, recognition technology coming anytime soon, but to be honest with you, the pen that you use to sign things, the electronic pen, 
in the grocery store, at the gas stations where you go in and pick up a, a couple of bag of chips or something, and you have to go and sign. Sure, you're wearing your mask, you're disin they, they disinfecting things. That pen is probably gross. And so what we need is disposable pens. And if a Q-tip would work, that would be a very cheap disposable <laughs> pen. But those are the kinds of things that we need to be getting rid of is contact with surfaces because we do. We do touch these touch screens and inevitably we scratch our eye, we touch our mouth. We're humans. We do that. We do it a lot. So be on the lookout for that kind of technology. Next, they talk about contact tracing, obviously inspired by the Singapore and Korea, South Korea experience where this has been very successful and I think we'll see a rise in people becoming employed as contact tracers in one shape or another. I think the technology on this has fallen short for the most part. This Google and Apple collaboration that was to come out about uh, doing a contact tracing app, evidently that has stalled. The article says that's due to disagreements with federal health authorities over the collection of location data. In the meantime, they say, there's a slew of unregulated contact tracing apps that have appeared on the Google and Apple stores. So this will become a quickly fragmented market. If everyone starts coming out with a lot of different apps, the apps won't talk to each other, which app will your health system use? And it'll probably be different than that health system across the street. So now cities have different contact tracing apps that won't talk to each other. And I could see where this will become very ineffective. Next, I talk about remote patient monitoring and automated communication. Here's a quote, a vast and growing array of automated communication tools allows caregivers to use rule-based messaging to push everything from health coaching, post-discharge care instructions, and appointment reminders through IVR, text, and mobile alerts. I am a huge fan of this. This is, if that's one of the benefits that comes out of COVID-19, is that we are able to push the automated messaging to providers and to clinicians and to uh, patients. That is awesome. And so when my colonoscopy comes due when I turn 50, I should get a text message saying, hey, we're ready for you. Go ahead and schedule. Click here to schedule. One click and it's and off I go. That's the kind of stuff I I don't need a primary care doctor to tell me I need a colonoscopy at 50. Create the rules, send it to me automatically, let me go do my thing. Uh, let's see. They say the use of digital and automated communication tools has improved healthcare outcomes by reducing no-shows for appointments, increasing adherence to medication regimens, and targeted interventions during adverse events. And the last line in the article I found was interesting is a fundamental enabler for seamless experiences for the patient is the integration of best-in-class telehealth and digital front door tools with the core EHR platform. So think about that digital front door for a minute. I am, I've reached out to a handful of CIOs and CDOs looking for someone who's going to come on the show and talk to us about this digital front door and what should a CMIO be doing around that. I think we should be involved in these discussions. It, should we have a chat bot that helps with symptom evaluation and triaging? 
that should have an MD at the table when those decisions are made. That's not a marketing decision. Of course, marketing is going to be at the table because you're going to put this tool on their website and they tend to own the website or the CIO would be involved as well because some of the technology that we're talking about isn't just the website, but maybe it's Alexa or Siri or other tools that I can engage with that help me get appointments or interact with my healthcare system. So that digital front door is an interesting concept. More to come on this. I will find someone. We will do an episode on that soon. Next article. This one comes out of Healthcare Finance by Mallory Hackett, and it came out on June 11th. Uber Health's non-emergency medical transport platform addresses the social determinants. A couple of quotes from the article. Every year, 4 million medical appointments are missed or delayed because patients can't get there. And this is a quote, it's from their product marketing at Uber for business. So take it with this with a grain of salt, but they say, access to transport, try again, access to transportation is a key social determinant of health that disproportionately affects vulnerable communities like the elderly, low income or chronically ill. And I believe that, I think that's right. It feels right to me. That's who is having trouble getting transportation. There is a care model that was in Norfolk, Virginia, where I came from previously, and they had something called GenCare. And GenCare was a model that targeted the elderly and the low income. And they were getting people into Medicare Advantage plans, and they did very effective care at reducing the cost of care for these patients. One of the things they did is they had a van. This van, number one, was awesome marketing for them because there's their name going up and down the road all over town advertising, we're going to pick up a patient right now. And they were able to reduce the cost of care by keeping patients out of the hospital. They reduced their no-shows. They did it by providing transportation. Now, this is a different twist on it and having Uber do it. That's interesting. When we looked at this in my previous health system, it got shot down. It got shot down before it got to the lawyers. It was people afraid of what the lawyers might say because what if the patient got in a car accident while on the way to our facility using uber and we had connected them to that app through our portal somehow that was integrated well uber health now has a million dollars of insurance that's in place so that should help alleviate that concern and i think that's uh, really great they go on to say uber's health platform has a variety of features one of which is a hipaa secure uh, connection it's available for desktops or mobile services. Providers can choose between two types of rides, a scheduled ride in which pickups can be set immediately or for up to 30 days in advance and flexible rides, which allow patients to confirm that they're ready to be picked up before the driver leaves. For patients who don't have mobile phones, Uber Health offers scheduling for landline riders. The telephone, the travel information is sent by automatic message to the rider's landline. So great, use of technology i encourage you to be involved with some of these tools particularly in trying to reduce no-shows and getting care to patient populations that have trouble getting into our offices you could argue that telehealth should supplant some of this but we do need to talk about is telehealth here to stay it should be but there are some patients that you just got to see in person and getting them there is going to be part of the solution now who's paying for it the health system 
Now, health systems tend to have pretty thin margins now. When you go to your CFO and say, hey, I need you to pay for transportation to bring the patients in, they may ask, what's the return on investment? And if you're in a fee-for-service model, I think it's there. You want to bring patients in because you're going to do things and you're going to order things. And those things generate downstream revenue. So get the patients in and you generate more revenue. In the preventative care world, value-based world, yes, you want to be able to bring those patients in so you can keep them out of your emergency department because they'll call 911 if they can't get to you and they need it to because they're sick. Next. we got two more articles. So this one, there's a new bill that would codify Medicare reimbursement for telehealth services. June 12th by Kat Gerich. And as you know, the Medicare waivers that is allowing for all the the loosening of the regulations and the payment parity with in-office visits expires every 90 days and the next time is coming up middle of July. And so they do need to come out with funding, at least directing CMS how they could do this. And so here's a line from the article. The, the bill is called the Helping Ensure Access to Local Telehealth or Health Act would require the Secretary of Health and Human Services to revise the Code of Federal Regulations to consider telehealth services from an eligible facility to be a, in quotes, visit. And here's a quote from one of the representatives, U.S. representative. Access to telehealth has become more than just a convenience, but rather a critical necessity in America. All patients, particularly our Medicare recipients, are in need of a solution to ensure access to telehealth services are free from undue barriers and restrictions. The barrier and restriction that they're talking about, though, is payment parity with office visits. Because the second you make telehealth worth less than an in-office visit, you will kill the incentives and everything goes back to the way it was. So earlier this month, a, another representative here, Democrat from Illinois, introduced a bill that would mandate a study on the effects of telehealth, noting that data informs policy changes. The goal, she said, was to see if we can make a case that the relaxed regulations around telehealth should become the new regulations. Oh my goodness, and I was going to use stronger words here. Um, yeah, so what should the government do? We should study this, which is government speak for let's slow down and do nothing. And let's get caught up in bipartisan jibber-jabber. And let's not help the public. I'm all about studying and evidence-based medicine. I think that's great. We do need to prove outcomes. But you know what? It's probably not going to be done by the government. We need to show for patients that we use telehealth for that we are getting better outcomes for our patients. Reduction in hospitalizations, reduction in ED visits. The problem is that we're not incentivized to do that. Certain states are. We are here in Maryland. But most of you are in health systems that are fee-for-service, and you will use telehealth to drive the cost of care to do procedures because that's what we get paid for, and that's the way the system is incentivized. So what will the study do show if we do it? It's going to show nothing right now, but we do need to get there. You need to look in value-based systems. Look at Kaiser and say, hey, does telehealth work for them? 50% of their visits are done now or their interactions are done in a digital manner. There's a reason for that. It's lowering the cost of care. Let's see. 
Another quote, allowing patients to connect virtually to their healthcare provider removes significant barriers like transportation, which disproportionately affects patients with lower incomes and those living in rural communities. The Health Act will reduce long-standing barriers to healthcare access by reducing red tape and providing sustainable reimbursement for telehealth services provided by community health centers. So the challenge of CMIOs is we've got to put up the money now. We cannot wait to see what Congress is going to do to get our platforms in place. Most of us put up Band-Aids. You could, in theory, sit back and use that Band-Aid solution for another year. But most of us are not wanting to do that. These Band-Aid solutions are not great. We are experiencing a 10 to 20 percent failure rate, and you cannot sustain good clinical practice in that environment. So we've got to get our more integrated platforms in place. We have to get the apps onto the patient's cell phones. We have to figure out which patients are having trouble and getting them the, the tools that they need to be successful. And that is an investment of time, energy, and money on the part of the health system and particularly the CMIO. So be prepared to move forward with the confidence that the government's going to get this one right, cross our fingers and just hope that it happens and advocate for it to happen. And it really needs to happen. Having said that, is there a chance the government will blow this? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. What do I think is going to happen? I think that they will leave telehealth to be equal parity to an office visit. What they will do is reduce the reimbursement for all office visits across the board so that it ends up to be budget neutral. I do not see right now people saying we need to add more money into healthcare. They're trying to reduce the money that goes into healthcare. I don't think we're going to get a pay raise because we switched to telehealth. And I think I'm going to wrap up there. I know we said we'd do another article, but to, just for the sake of time here, I think we should wrap. And that's our show for today. Thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn, send me your ideas for shows, guests you'd like to hear from or just to connect, and I look forward to bringing you our next episode.